meet up with a friend you haven't seen for quite a long time. Maybe you just bump into him in town and you say, hi, how are you doing? And instead of the obligatory, yeah, fine, how are you? He actually tells you how he's doing. There's a change. And uh, he talks about his sorrow that he has in his life. He says he's uh, in need of cheering up. He is quite anxious at times. He says, well, everyone looks after their own interests. He talks about someone who did him a great deal of harm. And on occasion when that's happened, no one came to support him. Everyone deserted him. What would you say? Would you think, oh, I just said hi. And uh, now he tells me all the stuff that's going on in his life. It's a bit much. Maybe he's a bit of a whinger, really, complaining about all these things. Or maybe you think, well, he really needs a chat. Let's go uh, into Costas, have a coffee, and uh, give him time to pour his heart out. Or maybe you think, oh, this is a bit beyond me. The guy needs therapy. I don't know what would be going through your mind if someone poured out all these things to you. And you probably realize they're not random phrases. These are actually things that Paul said. Most of them in the letter we're studying. Philippians and the last three I took from to Timothy. So what does that tell us about Paul? Is he feeling down? Is he complaining? Is he depressed? Is he in a difficult situation? And if so, how does he deal with it? So our passage for tonight is Philippians 2.19 till the end of the chapter. If you want to open your Bible there. We'll start reading Philippians 2 at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you couldn't give me. Amen. So far in this chapter of Philippians, we had the crucial exhortation in 2.4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
leading to Paul's exhortation that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, which then leads into the great Christ hymn. Following on from that in verse 12, it was all about the outworkings, about obedience. And we heard some more about that this morning from Samuel as well. Working out our salvation in practice. And a certain eagerness, a certain willingness, a keenness, as we heard out, hold out the word of life. That's the kind of things that Paul thinks should follow on from having an attitude that is the same as that of Christ Jesus. This passage looks very much like some practical organizational points from, oh, I'm going to send this person there and someone else, and we need to work out who is going when, where. But actually, this is also about practical consequences of having that same attitude as Christ Jesus. So let's, let's look at what's going on. Paul says that he hopes in the Lord to send Timothy to the Philippians soon. He doesn't quite know when. And in verse 24, he's also, again, confident in the Lord that he himself will go and visit them soon. Now remember, he's actually in prison, so he's not really the one who is in command of his life. He's not really the one who's going to decide, oh, I'll take a trip to Philippine next month. That's not the situation that he's in. He is in prison, but he is still planning ahead. He has plans. He wants to go to Philippi. He wants to accomplish certain things. But he does know that his planning and all his ideas are subject to the Lord's will. It is not something that he can bring uh, to happen. For instance, in 1, 19 and 20, For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's talking about his own situation there, that he's in prison, and he doesn't know what's going to happen there. We're not quite sure where he is in prison, whether that was Caesarea or Rome, or some people think Ephesus, but that doesn't really matter. He's in chains. He can't decide what's going to happen. He is confident that he will be released and can continue his ministry for the Lord. But he doesn't know for sure that that is going to happen. And indeed, he doesn't know for sure whether he will live or die, whether he will actually leave uh, the imprisonment alive or whether that will be the end of his life and ministry. So he's entertaining both possibilities. He might be set free. And then he has plans. He knows what he will do then if the Lord will set me free. And ultimately it depends on God. He knows that. It doesn't depend on whoever is holding him imprisoned. If he is let go, he has things that he wants to do, that he wants to accomplish. But the Lord hasn't given him a detailed roadmap. On the road to Damascus, he met the Lord. And as we read through what happened there, 
And afterwards, it was clear that, yes, he was given a sort of general view of the kind of ministry that he was to expect and that it would include suffering. He knew that his task was to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to bring the word of God to the non-Jews, and that obviously that was going to require a lot of traveling. We have read about all the hardships that uh, he endured. But he hasn't got a detailed roadmap. He doesn't know, next month I will be set free, and then I'll go to Philippi, and then maybe back to Rome, and I would quite like to see Athens as well. It doesn't work that way in his life. The Lord hasn't given him any details as to what is going to happen. But he knows his goal. His goal is to exalt Christ by whatever means that might come apart, uh, come about. He prays, we've just read, that he will have sufficient courage to face up to whatever situation might come, whether by life or by death. In the meantime, now, he knows that he has certain things to do, that he has people to take care of, both individual people and churches, because obviously he planted many churches. And that's where sending Timothy comes into it. That would serve a double purpose. It would be uh, his ministry, Timothy's ministry, to the church in Philippi, which would be beneficial to the church. And it would be good for Paul as well, because Timothy could report back and cheer Paul up by uh, fresh news from the church of the Philippians. I'm sure we've all realized now that this is one of the warmest letters of Paul. He's obviously got a very good relationship to the church in Philippi. And he's keen to know what's going on. He can't just go on Facebook and see what their latest update is. He needs to wait for someone to come and bring news, like Epaphroditus had done. And if he sends Timothy, Timothy can either come back or he can send someone else with a message and a kind of status update. So a double purpose there, ministry to the church of the Philippians and news being sent back to Paul. And in the next few verses then, as he's talking about this, he seems to give reasons justifying why he plans to send Timothy. And it's not immediately obvious why he does that. When we read in Acts about the original ministry in Philippi, it is actually silent about Timothy's role. It says a lot about Paul and Silas, but Timothy is very much in the background. Maybe he was seen as the junior, as merely an assistant. Maybe he was then, but maybe the Philippians are still seeing him as such. And if maybe if Paul sends him, they would see him very much as second best. Oh, well, Paul couldn't make it, and now he sends this young guy. Oh, well. Hmm. But that's not how Paul wants Timothy to be received. And that's why he describes him as... There's no one else, or I have no one else like him. And in his letter to Timothy, the first one, he describes him as my true son in the faith. The Philippians can be in no doubt at all that Timothy will come with the full blessing, and in a sense with the full authority 
of Paul. He is sent by the apostle. And that has to mean something. He says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Well, we can't help but notice that this echoes the verse 4 we mentioned earlier. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what Timothy is doing. And that's why he is someone to be commended and to be recommended to the church. So what we're seeing here is a practical expression of having that attitude, the attitude of Christ Jesus. Timothy did. He cared for others. He cared for this church. But not many were like that. Not many were like him. Most, Paul says sadly, look out for their own interests, not only those of Christ Jesus. Timothy, he says, although young has proved himself, he's worked alongside Paul for the gospel. And the word that is being used there to describe work is literally working as a slave. Not just sort of gentle work, you don't really get into a sweat, it isn't too bad. No, it's working really hard. Not working as a slave for Paul, but working alongside with Paul, both of them working as slaves for the gospel. Like father and son. The father teaching the son his trade, which often happened in those days. And Paul sees Timothy as a son in Christ, as someone he's trained, he's educated, and he's passed the most precious thing he has onto, this gift of faith, of forgiveness, the gospel, the truth of the Lord Jesus. And Paul hopes to send him soon, but he qualifies that with as soon as I see how things go with me. So, what's he doing there? Well, we can go back once again to this key verse 4 in this chapter. Each of you should look not only to your own interests. And now we can put the emphasis on this not only. Yes, you are allowed to look after your own interests. It's necessary for you to continue the race to take care of yourself spiritually, mentally, physically. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is looking at his own interest. But not exclusively, not uh, selfishly, as those in verse 21 would do. But he has needs, even though he is an apostle, even though he's this, this man who's written so many letters that we now have as part of our New Testament. He has personal needs, and it's okay to take care of those. And it's okay even to let a whole church wait. Timothy isn't going to come now, because at the moment, I just need him more. He needs to stay here with me. And again, we can ask ourselves, well, why would that be? And maybe there was a clue in chapter 1, if you read from 115 with me. 
It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So there are issues there in whatever city it is, Caesarea, Rome, Ephesus, where Paul is in prison. And maybe he feels that he needs to address those before he can send Timothy away. After all, he's in chains. He's not able to go around the town and talk to people, confront people maybe with their sin. He needs someone to be his feet and his mouth, his hands. He needs someone to be able to go out there and do what needs doing. So maybe he needed Timothy to help address those issues. But he is also still thinking of the Philippians' interests as well. So not only your own interests, but also the interests of others. That's exactly what we see Paul doing here. He isn't just organizing some practicalities before he moves on to the next bit in his letter. This is an expression of what has gone on before in this chapter. And that's why he wants to send Epaphroditus back to them. That's looking at the Philippians' interest and also at Epaphroditus' interest. This man had been the carrier of a gift to Paul from the Philippians, presumably a financial gift, says so in 4.18 if you want to look it up. But he was much more than that. He was there also to, or sent there to take care of Paul's needs. They realized maybe that Paul was in prison and therefore he needed someone to look out for him. Prison was probably quite different from how it is nowadays and you might not be fed by the people guarding you, but they might assume that family or friends would see to it that you got food and you might even have to pay rent for a room where they kept you prison. So very different and very difficult if there's no one around to take care of you. So Epaphroditus was sent to do that. And therefore it's fair to assume that the Philippians thought that he was going to stay with Paul. And that's why Paul does something similar when he writes about Epaphroditus that he did writing about Timothy. He almost seems to justify that he is sending him back. And that's probably in the face of these expectations of the Philippians, while he was there to stay to help Paul. And Paul doesn't want them to get the impression that Epaphroditus failed and therefore is sent back. Oh, I can't do with this guy. He doesn't do a good job. No, there were other reasons. So firstly, it follows on very practically from Paul and Timothy's present inability to travel. Paul is in chains. Timothy is there to help him. And he is sending someone else instead to communicate with them. And like with Timothy, he gives Epaphroditus credentials. He's more than just a messenger. He is more than just carrying a letter. He is there to send a message himself. He is described as Paul's brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. So he's not the postman. 
he is someone who can actually do something for the Philippians when he gets back there. (coughs) And the Philippians should see him in those terms, not as someone who has failed because they sent him out to do a job and now Paul sends him back. They should draw the wrong conclusion from that. He's also sending him back because Epaphroditus himself is quite distressed because the Philippians are worrying about him. So his own people back home are worried because they had heard that he was ill and they don't quite know, has he fully recovered? Has he maybe even died? What's going on? And that concerns him. He longs for all of them. And he's concerned for them. He's concerned that they are worrying. Again, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's again, this verse 4, look also at the interests of others. That's what Epaphroditus is doing. He's worrying about his folks back home. And so is Paul. Paul wants to see that this situation is cleared up, that they know exactly that the man has recovered, that he is healthy. So it's another example of someone looking to the interests of others. Yes, he had been seriously ill. Yes, he had almost died. But Paul says God had mercy on him. And in the same vein, he had mercy on Paul also. He spared him sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul also or already felt that he was in a sorrowful situation. But then having his friend and fellow worker Epaphroditus die would have made it even worse. But God spared him that. So Paul isn't afraid to admit that, yes, I am experiencing sorrow. Yes, it isn't easy being in chains here instead of going out there and doing what I really want to do, which is share the gospel. But being a servant of Christ doesn't imply that we won't experience difficulties, that it will all work out in the way we think is best. Maybe Paul had expected different things, but he can still take this from the hand of the Lord. And it doesn't even mean that the difficulties that we might experience will not get us down. Even that can be the case. A Christian can be down, a Christian can be depressed, we can suffer. But the thing is, we know that we don't do it on our own. As an aside, it's also interesting to read that the Apostle Paul, the man who did so many miracles and healings, doesn't take for granted that God would actually heal his fellow worker, Epaphroditus. He didn't say, oh, stand up and have faith, and God has blessed you, and you're a son of the king, you shouldn't be ill, just get on with your life, God has healed you. He acknowledges that it's an act of mercy of God, and not something that we can automatically count on. But he has been healed, and Paul is grateful for that act of mercy, and is now eager to send him back to Philippi, so that those in Philippi will be glad to see him in good health. So Paul, again, looking at the interests of others. But also that he, Paul himself, might have less anxiety. Maybe he was anxious, worrying about what the Philippians, what their state of mind might be, 
their worries about Epaphroditus being severely ill, maybe dying. Maybe just the idea that his brothers were in, in, in turmoil emotionally because they didn't know what had happened to Epaphroditus. Maybe that was the thing that caused him anxiety. So the church in Philippi are not just to welcome Epaphroditus back, but honor him as someone who almost died for his ministry, who almost died for his work for Christ, helping Paul. So once again, a prime example of what our attitudes should be like, like those of Christ Jesus, looking after the interest of others, as well as our own. That's why he was holding Timothy back. So, to come to some conclusions about this passage. The entire passage is about practical outworkings, about practical examples of what went before in chapter 2, about what we should do, what our attitude should be like, everything expressed in the hymn that Paul writes there. The fact that we shouldn't only look at our own interests, but the interests of others. All this comes to very practical expressions here. It's a bit like a school teacher explaining the theory first, and then doing some sums or whatever on the board, so you can actually see how it happens, how it works, how it finds a practical expression. And if you're anything like me, stuff only really sinks in when you see the practical examples. You can have very lofty theories, but what does it mean for my life? How do I do it? And here we can see how Paul did it, how Timothy did it, how Epaphroditus did it. We've got practical examples about what our attitude should be like. And it's not enough to say that we're doing well enough. Yeah, we can pick an example of someone we admire, a good Christian, and say, oh, I'm going to take him or her as my example, and that's how I'm going to try and live. Or maybe you're a bit more ambitious, and you take a great, famous Christian from the past, and you get their biography, and you read that, and you say, oh, yeah, I want to be like this man or this woman. And you think, oh, I've set my standards really high now, not just someone in my church, but this famous person that everyone knows about, that books have been written about. That's what my attitude should be like. But we all realize the standard is way higher than that. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's how people will see that we're different. And that's how we carry out the great commandment that Jesus left us with to make disciples. If people can see that we're different and the standard isn't just a little bit different, the standard is totally different, like Christ Jesus. And that can be a little bit scary, but we've got practical examples here of how it can work in just a few aspects of the lives of these three men that are mentioned here. But even then, it might sound like an impossible task. How can my attitude be the same as that of Jesus? He is sinless, he's faultless, he's the Son of God, he died on a cross. How can I ever be anything 
anywhere close to that. And I can't if I draw on my own resources and try to polish myself up. I might make the outside look fairly acceptable and fool maybe some of you that I'm actually quite good. But I won't fool God. I need to draw on something else. It's not a makeover. It's something much more fundamental than that. But we're not doing it on our own. In Romans, Paul writes, for you did, re- you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So we have this spirit inside us, and that makes the difference. I can only try and polish up the outside, and that might work or not, but we've got the spirit inside that changes the whole fundamental basis of our nature. It's this spirit of whom Jesus said near the end of the Gospel of John, it is good for you that I'm going away. So the disciples had by now caught on that Jesus said, yes, I'm leaving you, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get murdered. And they were worrying, quite understandably. But Jesus said, no, this is actually good for you. It is beneficial unless I go away. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And he will guide you into all truth. So this ministry that we've been given, this ministry of, of living out the gospel and passing on the gospel to other people, this making disciples, that is something that the Spirit works out through us. Through us by renewing our nature so that we can indeed be different, that we can have this attitude of Christ Jesus. But also, in a sense, on the receiving end, by convicting people of sin. We don't have to convince them. We don't have to believe that we are so brilliant in our arguments, that we are so convincing that we make people Christians. You can't. But we can bring them to church. We can let them hear the preaching of God's word. We can explain God's word ourselves to them. And the Holy Spirit can work through that. But it is the Holy Spirit who convicts We can get the best preachers and we will still not convict people. But God will convict through his word. So the ministry that we've been given to make disciples, it's not something that we do on our own. Because God is there with us. He's there in us. And he's working his purposes out in our lives. And he's convicting other people of sin. But we're also not on our own because we've got each other. And that's an important point as well. We shouldn't over-spiritualize. Paul is quite happy to say, I'm not going to send Timothy to you tomorrow. I'm going to keep him around here because I need him. And that might sound harsh, but he had needs as well. And if he was to continue his ministry fruitfully, he needed to look out for those as well. 
So I think this passage is a great illustration of what ministry is about. We see Paul not doing it all on his own, but quite happily relying on Timothy, having the support there so that he can continue. It is not a one-person machine that is working out this ministry, but it's a group effort. And Timothy is one of them. Epaphroditus is another. And we know about many other people mentioned in the New Testament. Think of Silas and Barnabas. People that Paul worked with. He didn't all do it on his own. We are Christ's body. We are a living entity with Christ as the head. And we're working together. We are working his purposes out. And in the passage from Corinthians that Barbara read to us, everyone has his part to play there. There is no one-man show. There is a body ministry. And that's how Paul could cope with all those things we had on the overhead earlier. Because he wasn't doing it on his own. He knew that God was there with him. And that Christ was there with him. And Christ was there with him through his body through other Christians who cared and other Christians who helped. And that's how Paul and that's how we can effectively reach out with the gospel. We can do it together. Shall we close by singing Never Alone?